Raise your hand if you have ever had the Lord answer a specific prayer that you've had in your life. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Isn't that the best feeling in the whole world? Especially when it happens like in the moment. You're asking for something and something real specific and it happens. You need a certain amount of money to meet the rent that month and it just comes in. Or you're praying for somebody to be healed and they are healed. Or there's a certain situation that has to break right. If it doesn't break right, if it breaks left or if it keeps going, it's all over. And it breaks right at the last minute. That's the coolest thing. The Bible is full of prayers like that. A lot of stories of women asking for children and the Lord said, okay, I'll give you a child, but... He's going to be a prophet. Are you down with that? And if you've experienced that, you know the exhilaration that comes in that moment. And all of a sudden, you're like, I'm going to pray for everything. Because <laughs> God answered that prayer. I'm going to see what else he's going to do. It's, it's awesome. That's what it's supposed to be. I think in heaven, one of the most interesting things to see will be when the Lord shows us how our prayers affected what was going on around us. Hey, you see this guy? This guy's marriage was restored. It was on the edge, and you prayed for marriages in your church, and I was able to bring it together in that moment. And that, that tipping point didn't turn into a falling over point. It, it, it was able to stay together. Hey, you prayed for that missionary, and they kept going, and now all these people got saved because you prayed. That's going to be awesome. But what's going to be less awesome is when the Lord shows us all the things that he could have done if we had prayed. And the Lord opens it up and says, this is all the things I wanted to do through your life and through your prayers, but you didn't pray. Let me give you an example. This is from the Old Testament. Before we get to Matthew, the story is, I could just read this and it would make every point that I'd like to make today. So listen up close. This is 2 Kings 13, verses 14 through 19. You can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. We're only going to be here for a second. Now when Elisha, had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So this is the king coming to pay respects to a celebrity preacher. You remember when Billy Graham was laid in state in the Capitol building after he died? That was pretty cool, but the cynical part of me was going, none of y'all cared about who Billy Graham was. That's kind of what's going on with Joash here. Joash the king knows he's got to come and make an appearance at Elijah's bedside or everyone's going to wonder, well, what's wrong with King Joash? Doesn't he serve the Lord? Doesn't he know who Elisha is? And I know that because let's see what happens. So Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. So he's shooting the arrow out of the window. You with me? And Elisha said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So what do the arrows represent? Victory over Syria. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. So he said, This arrow represents victory over Syria. Now take that quiver and shoot some arrows. And the king struck three times and stopped. Remember, this is a political appearance. He's, he's here for the cameras. He's here so he can say he went to see Elisha. And so he shoots there. Ah, arrow of victory over Syria, you crazy old man. Okay, sure, I'll shoot the arrow. And Elisha's kind of looking at him. Okay, I'll shoot another arrow. I'll shoot another arrow. 
Okay, third, you want me, okay, okay, I'll shoot a third arrow. There, three is, is the number of the Trinity. It's great, so there you go. Thank you, Elisha. This is wonderful. But the man of God was angry with him. Remember, what did the arrow represent? Victory over Syria. And Elisha said, you should have struck five or six times. He's probably like, how many arrows you got in there? Five or six? Why didn't you shoot five or six? Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Elisha laid it out for him. You shoot these arrows. They represent victory over Syria. Joash shoots half of what he had. And he's like, what is your problem? I told you what this was. Why didn't you do it? You all know the song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Needless pain. You know, God gives us grace to walk through trials, but sometimes those trials could have been prevented if we had prayed. You know, we're living, as I mentioned during worship, in a time of crisis, and it feels like we're in the ashes, right? And there's a lot of people making a lot of money scaring us on TV and online, but everybody shouts about prayer in times like these. Whether they're shouting, we can't just pray, we got to do more. Or people saying, no, 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 we've got to pray, we've got to pray, that's all that matters. But you know what? I have learned, maybe this is a cynicism again. It's going to be an optimistic message, I promise. For everybody who talks about the importance of prayer, for every thousand, there's probably one that actually prays. A lot of times we think talking about prayer is a replacement for prayer. Marching to get prayer back in schools is a replacement for prayer in our own personal lives. This is like Joash, king of Israel. Well, I shot the arrows. Yeah, but you shot half of what you had. I told you what it was for. We're going to look at the story in Matthew. This is the greatest example of answered prayer in Scripture, and it is a heartbreaking example of prayerlessness and what happens when we fail to pray. And I will say, this is going to be less of a teaching and much more of an encouragement and an exhortation. So if we don't get to the end of this passage, I'm kind of okay with that. The only goal that I have today and that the Spirit has in our midst today is to get you excited and ready to pray. To put that bow in your hands and say, this is the arrow of victory. Now shoot, ready, aim, fire. We're going to see it in the life of Jesus. We're going to see the opposite in the life of the disciples. And I hope that after we have been inundated with way too many cross-references about prayer in the Bible, that we're ready to get together and pray. You ready? Let's read verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. You know this story. This is Jesus in the garden when he would sweat the, as it were, great drops of blood. He's going to the cross the next morning. We've already had the triumphal entry. We've already driven the money changers out of the temple. He's confronted the religious leaders. We've had the last supper. Judas has run off to betray him. He's only got a few hours left. And in the gospel of John, he tells them, I have many things left to tell you. But he chose instead, rather than using those last hours to cram in all the things that he still had to teach them, he said, we've got to go to the garden and pray. 
That was more important to Jesus than getting them all the doctrine that he needed to teach them. This was Jesus' pattern. Luke 5.16 says he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. That was Jesus' thing. He would abandon the trip. He would abandon the itinerary. And he'd go to the desert and pray. And it drove his disciples crazy sometimes. And people would follow him out into the desert and they didn't have any food. And he's like, well, now what are we going to do? They're all here and if they try to walk home, they're sort of past the point of no return. But this is what the Son of God does. The role of Christ for all eternity has been to ask and receive from his Father. We read, or we didn't read, I, I mentioned earlier in Hebrews, it says that Jesus lives ever to make intercession. That is his role within the economy of the Trinity, is to ask of the Father and to receive. The Father gives and then the Spirit executes the will of God. John 11, verses 41 through 42. John 11, 41 through 42. says that Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. How often does God hear Jesus? Always. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus always makes intercession and God always hears him. And the spirit never takes a day off, so it always comes to pass. What is prayer? It's not complicated. It's like petitioning a king going before the king or somebody else and asking for something. Except we're talking to God. God has absolute power to answer our prayers. Now, the world loves to define prayer differently. They love to make it cute because they don't believe that prayer works. So, you know, what they try to say is they try to take the ancillary side benefits of prayer and make those the primary reason for prayer. They'll say, listen, even if you're not religious, you ought to pray in the morning. It's like, what in the world? <laughs> that makes no sense. Because it calms you down, and it focuses your mind, and it makes you at peace with the world around. Yeah, that happens, but that's not why we pray. If some pagan could do that, that's probably not what Jesus was talking about. We are asking and receiving from the Father. That's what Jesus does. He asks and receives. That's what prayer is. And it's mysterious. Read through the book of Daniel. There's a story in Daniel where Daniel was praying for three weeks. God sent the answer on day one, but it didn't get there for three weeks because there was demonic opposition to the angel that God sent to answer his prayer. I'm not going to dive into that passage. We'll never get out. It's too interesting. But the point is that sometimes we're praying, we're saying, God, why aren't you answering? There might be an angel squabbling with a demon right over there with the answer, ready to bring it to you. So don't stop praying. <laughs> Keep going. Prayer is mysterious, but there are real consequences to prayer in the spirit. The problem is sin has corrupted us and it's made God unavailable to us. So that if we as people want to come to God and pray... Why in the world would God listen to us? And then those same pseudo-spiritual folks that want to tell you that you should just pray even if you don't believe in God because it makes you feel nice. Like, well, the universe will align to help. We're not talking about the universe. We're talking about a personal God. And you have offended him. You are full of sin. Why in the world would he listen to you? People want to ask that question. Well, why doesn't God answer everybody's prayers? Why would God answer anybody's prayers? We're full of sin. 
This is why there were sacrifices in the Old Testament. Not because God liked the dead animals, but he was trying to communicate to the people, this is what you deserve. You can't come to me unless there is death. But there's good news, isn't there? In reality, Jesus Christ is the only one who has the right to pray, isn't he? And he does pray. And he's praying here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we know that. Jesus Christ has the right to appear before the Father. He always intercedes and the Father always hears him. We, on the other hand, have no right to appear before God. So let's read verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is astounding. He invites the disciples to come and pray with him. Hope you can grasp that. Who is the only one who has the right to pray to the Father? Jesus Christ. What right do we have to pray to the Father? None. But Jesus has invited us and brought us with him. We don't have access, but he does. He's got the little key card that you scan when you're trying to go in the double doors. He brought us in. What right do you have to pray? None, but I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. He has restored our access to God. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. That was broken when they sinned. Jesus is found here walking in the garden with his disciples. Different garden, but you see the picture there. Jesus has restored our access to God. He had said that night in the Last Supper, John 16, verses 23 through 24, in that day, meaning the day that Jesus has ascended to his Father, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Why did Peter, James, and John have the right to pray in this moment? Because they were with Jesus. That's the key. He said, when I ascend to my Father, prayer is going to be different. You can go to God directly because you're coming in my name. Because Jesus died on the cross, he has forgiven sins. Sins have been atoned for. He's risen from the dead and brought us with him into that new life. So there is no more barrier between you and God. The veil of the temple, remember, was rent in two when Jesus died. The Ark of the Covenant was exposed in the holy place for everyone to see. That's what Jesus did. He has brought us in. You have no right to pray. Jesus does. But Jesus has taken you by the hand and walked you in and said, now you can pray. If we are in Christ, we have the rights of Christ. Well, that's not right to say that I have all the rights and privileges of Christ. Yeah, it is, because it's not about you. It's about him. You're praying in his name. What is the name of Jesus? It's the name above every other name. This means that when we pray, you have the same access to the Father that the Son has. You have as much access to God as Jesus does. If you don't, you're doing it on your own and you have none. But if you're doing it in Christ, you have all access. Which means you have the same expectation of an answer to your prayers that Jesus Christ does. And how often does God hear Jesus when he prays? Always. Therefore, in Christ, when you pray, God 
always hears you. That's not wishful thinking. That's biblical theology. Now, we can get used to that. Well, we're, yeah, we're in church. We're in God's house. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> but think of everybody around the world who would do anything to catch a glimpse of God. Would do anything to get into God's presence. People do all kinds of weird, horrible things to themselves. They get high on drugs to have some sort of weird experience and think that they've seen God. They'll cut themselves. They'll mutilate their bodies. They'll starve themselves. There are these Indian guys in uh, Hindu cultures that they have these little alcoves in the wall and they'll shove themselves inside of it so that they are maximally uncomfortable physically so that way they think it makes their spirit stronger. Climbing mountains on their knees. People have sacrificed their children in the past to speak to God. But you have the authority of Jesus Christ to come before God and just ask. How awesome is that? That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We do not pray like the world prays. The world prays and says, no, don't expect an answer. Just expect that you're going to feel better about it. We come to prayer with a reasonable theological expectation that we will receive an answer to our prayers. That's the guarantee that comes with the name of Jesus. Do you remember at the end of, of the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life? He needs all that money, and all his friends come bringing in, they're putting their coins on the table, and his rich friend shows up and says, hey, I've extended you a line of credit for $25,000. And it's like, well, that solves that problem, because now I've got access to all that money. Now, we could be snarky and say, well, it's not his money. Well, who cares? He has it in his name. And because he has access to his name, he can draw on that account. It's the same thing when you come to God. When you start looking at yourself in prayer, you're going to see how unworthy you are. Good. You are unworthy. The problem is you're not looking in the right spot. Look up at Jesus. Is he worthy? Is he worthy to receive an answer to his prayers? Yes, he is. You're in his name. Because if you're in your name, you're not even in the room. But if you're in Jesus' name, you're all in. That's what it means. Jesus has invited us to pray. He's the only one that has a right to pray, but he said, you can come and pray like I can. Verse 38. I hope you're getting excited. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is a heartbreaking sentence. Jesus is alone with his three best friends, the ones he's known the longest out of this group. He says, my soul is very sorrowful. Imagine Jesus Christ turning to you with tears in his eyes, shaking. You ever had a panic attack? You don't have to raise your hand. It's not fun. It's awful. You feel like you have no control. And here's Jesus having a panic attack in front of his best friends and saying, please pray with me. Please pray with me. My soul is sorrowful. I'm so sorrowful I could die right now. He tells them to watch and pray. We all know that the Bible tells us to pray. But a lot of times, and we're going to talk about that it's appropriate sometimes, we only pray out of guilt. It's okay to pray out of guilt. But we think, well, every time someone tells me to pray, it's like, yeah, I get it. I know I'm supposed to pray. I've been a Christian for a long time. It's really easy to tell people to pray. But you know what? You know what the Bible tells us about prayer? Think of the most, like, guilt-trippy message you've ever heard about prayer. 
Psalm 105 verse 4 says this, Seek the Lord in His strength, seek His presence continually, meaning without stopping, always be seeking His presence. New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, you know it, pray without ceasing. I love the New Living Translation. It just says, never stop praying. That is real simple. So, if you've ever been in a message and somebody was making you feel really bad to have you pray more, Paul beats that guy. He said, never, ever stop praying. But you can't picture God with his finger in your face, shaking at you and saying, you better pray or so help me. Instead, you've got to picture Jesus here. Jesus in the middle of the most stressful, sorrowful moment of his life, shaking deep breaths, those deep shuddering breaths that someone gets when they're having those those fearful moments, sweat pouring off of him, voice trembling, and he says, please pray with me. Please come and watch with me. Why did Jesus pray? It was out of love. It was out of compassion. It was out of his desire to work out the will of his Father. The Lord tells us to pray. Jesus told them to pray, and God has told us to pray. In fact, he told us to never stop praying. And we ask ourselves, well, why pray? I mean, God is sovereign. God's going to do what he wants anyway. So why should I pray? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I'll do it, Lord. You told me to pray, so I'll pray. But I'm not expecting anything to change. That might be logical, but it's not biblical. The fascinating, inescapable truth of Scripture is that God calls us to partner with him in executing his will through prayer. That God, of his own sovereign volition, has tied his will to the prayers of the saints. That when we pray, things happen. And when we don't pray, things that God would have done will not happen because we did not pray. That doesn't make any sense. It's what the Bible says, and that's all I'm really interested in. James 5, 13 through 18. This is a longer passage. But this is what the brother of Jesus, exhorted the church to do. Is anyone among you suffering? What would be our solution to that? Well, I'm suffering. What do I do? He said, let him pray. Well, it's not a very sophisticated answer, James. Yeah, right. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? This is the biblical solution to sickness. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And he will feel so much better about his situation, and then he can go to the doctor, and the doctor can handle it, right? Is that what it says? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. How many times have you heard that verse applied to your internal healing? You'll feel so much better about yourself. James is talking about bodily healing in answer to prayer. Why should I confess my sins? Because your sins, apparently, according to James 5, may be the reason you're sick. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I like the older translations. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Now, Elijah, you know God is sovereign over the water cycle. Don't you dare try and interfere with what God's trying to do. He prayed that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain. And then he prayed again, 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And people say, well, that was Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. Elijah was a man of God. Elijah was like the crazy desert wild man. I mean, of course, he says, he was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like you, and he prayed. That passage, I love, because just reading it makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> Come on, James. Why did you have to say it quite like that? qualify those statements a little bit. I mean, come on, it's not always God's will. James had no time for that kind of thing. Read his letter. It's very straightforward, you could say. Prayer is heir to a Christian. Have you found that when you have one really serious, awesome prayer time with the Lord, that can keep you going for like weeks? Like when you have one moment where you're on your knees, you're before God, you're crying out to him, and, and it's serious, intense, nobody could deny it prayer. And you do that for 20, 30 minutes, like the next two weeks, you feel like you and God are like this. But you know what we try to do? We try to be like those pearl divers that, that dive under the water and hold their breath for like five or six minutes while they're looking for the pearl. And then they come up for air. And like, oh man, they, they just barely made it. Why do we do that? The Lord has given you a scuba tank. He said, put it on your back, carry it with you, and keep breathing, and you can stay under forever. The Lord doesn't intend us to be like that, just one moment to one moment. Keep praying, keep asking, and you will see God at work. When our hearts are aligned with God's heart, you call upon him to activate his will and his plan on the earth. That's prayer with power. And we love to stress about what is the will of God. I don't know what you do to know what the will of God is. It's sitting in your lap right there. I don't know what his will is for this situation. Okay, then pray for what you would like to see in that situation. I, I would never assume. You're not assuming. You're being obedient. The Lord told Abraham, okay, I'm, hey, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Lord, please don't. Okay, well, what are you thinking, Abraham? Well, if you find 100 people, you can't destroy it. Okay, fine. I won't destroy it if it's 100 people. Talked him all the way down to 10 people. Problem was, there was only one, so he had to get destroyed anyway. Lord told Moses, Moses, here's the plan. Here's, here's what I'm going to do in this situation. I'm going to nuke the children of Israel, and I'm going to start over with you because they're a stiff-necked, stubborn people, and I can't take it anymore. Moses said, but Lord, if you do that, everybody in Egypt is going to say, see, I told you that God was crazy and evil and only brought pain. And these people, you, they're yours. They're your children, and I know they're stiff-necked and stubborn, but God, they're the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God goes, all right, fine, fine. I won't kill them all, but I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel instead. Moses said, no, Lord, we won't leave unless you, you come with us personally. And God said, stop questioning me, Moses. No, he didn't. He said, fine, I'll go with you. The Bible is full of God having conversations with people about what's going to happen. And that was old covenant. That was old covenant. Moses wasn't praying in Jesus' name. He didn't know who Jesus was. But it said God spoke to him face to face like a man talks to his friend. Well, when I pray, never happens to me. Well, are you praying without ceasing? Are you never stopping praying? The Lord has revealed his plan to us. And he's liberated us through the authority of Jesus Christ to bring about his kingdom. It's like when he created Adam and Eve. He said, fill the world, multiply. Go make something of the world. Well, what do you want, Lord? He says, I want to see you. Live out my image that I put in you. And now here we are in the New Testament, and it's the same thing. He told us what to do. Go, make disciples. And we want to wonder, oh, I don't know if this is going to be God's will. Maybe I shouldn't pray. 
Paul's default position was to pray, wasn't it? I'm just going to keep on asking. And then there was one time God told him, Paul, chill. This time, the answer is no. Sometimes that happens, but that's not where we start. The exception is not when God answers our prayer. The exception is when God overrules us because he knows better than we do. Verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Jesus of Nazareth fell on his face and prayed. The humanity of Christ is just striking in this story. Saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Well, I prayed, and I've not received the answer to my prayer. So James can talk all he wants about God answering prayers. But I've prayed. Well, you know what else James said? James 4, verses 2 through 3. Told you this guy was the real deal. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The most common Biblical explanation of unanswered prayer is prayerlessness. The Lord said, I would have given it to you, but you didn't pray. Or you didn't keep praying. James is reminding us there that prayer doesn't mean that the will of God can be subverted. Jesus is demonstrating even here, right? Not my will, but yours be done. And this is good because it, it can head off a few awful things at the pass, Right? He says, you ask a miss that you may spend it on your pleasures. God told us we could have anything. I'm going to ask for a Lexus. I'm going to ask for a mansion and servants and gold rings. Yeah, God's not going to answer that prayer. But there are a lot of people that have made a lot of money fleecing the flock by convincing people that God will answer that prayer. That's not good. Those people are going to be in hot water when they get to heaven. You want to be one of those guys that stand before Jesus? You told them what? You told them, send $1,000 and I'll send you a magical wallet that will never run out? Well, you said if we ask anything in your name. I, I, I don't have time for that. James is told, you ask and miss to spend it on your pleasures. <laughs> the idea that God gives us permission to claim those things or that if you're suffering, well, it's because you didn't pray. Not necessarily. Jesus was about to suffer, wasn't he? About to get nailed to a cross. But I think we get this, don't we? Sometimes when we're in God's presence... Our selfishness is exposed. You ever be praying for something and then all of a sudden you realize, this is not the right thing to be praying for. Get him, Lord. That, that boss of mine is driving me crazy. Lord, I want her gone. I, I want her exposed for everyone to see. That she, what a fraud she is and that she never gets another job. Okay, maybe I shouldn't be praying this. <laughs> Lord, you defend the righteous and I'm righteous. So get her, Lord. Get him, Lord. Or maybe you're even just praying like, wow, this is a very selfish thing that I'm asking for. Jesus did not show immaturity here. He was asking a bold thing, wasn't he? Saying, Lord, is there anything other than the cross that we could make work? That's what Jesus was praying. Please, God, anything but the cross. But what did he end it with? But if there is no other way, let's do it. Strengthen me for the journey. Your will be done. The more you familiarize yourself with who God is, the less likely it is that you're going to ask for something foolish. But the most common problem is that we don't pray. I wanted to get out, that out very quickly, that we, sometimes we're asking for the wrong thing. And sometimes God's answer is no. The, the salvation of the world was more important than Jesus being relieved of his anxiety at this time, wasn't it? But what did God do? God sent angels to strengthen him. So it's not like his prayers weren't answered. 
God always answers his prayer. If he's going to give you a no, he's going to give you the strength to endure that no. We have to know that. But you know what? We can spend all our time focusing on that. And it makes us feel safe and relieved. Oh, good. Now I have a safe explanation for why my prayers never get answered. So I don't really have to pray, really, because it's all going to be God's will. And then we say a lot of cute things that are not Bible verses in order to make ourselves sound spiritual. So let's get into some of that. Verse 40, Jesus is in prayer. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. So those of us who have ever fallen asleep during a prayer meeting, you're in good company. And uh, when we were growing up, the church had pews, and you could always tell who had fallen asleep during the prayer meeting because they'd have a line across their forehead where they had been leaning against the pews. Oh, I'm praying. And then they said, you know, sit up in there. <laughs> but the disciples were sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the sad part, as if this was not a heartbreaking enough story already. The disciples are sleeping. Jesus is in agony, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, crying out to God, knowing he's about to be crucified, asking his buddies to pray with him. He gets to the point where he's like, I, I got to have some guys around me. And he goes back, and they're asleep. They're asleep. He sternly rebukes them. And Jesus guilt trips them. Apparently, he's unfamiliar with the idea that guilt is a bad thing. God never wants you to feel guilty. Now, sometimes if you need to feel guilty, you should feel guilty. One hour, Peter. You couldn't pray one hour. You're a fisherman. You stay up all night every night. You couldn't stay up for one hour and pray with me tonight of all nights. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. Sometimes we should feel bad. If we can't pray even a little bit, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. But the thing is, Jesus isn't just personally offended. He is trying to protect them from the temptation that is coming. You know what's going to happen. The soldiers are going to show up. They're going to scatter. And Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. So what does he do? He says, we're going to take a couple hours and pray, fellas. The implication here is that their fate was not sealed. If they had prayed, who knows what could have happened. That's why we make a mistake. When we say that prayer is, well, it's not about changing things, it's about changing me. That sounds great. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's partly true. Prayer does change us. But prayer is asking and receiving. And if we start to replace that with, well, it's about changing my heart. We, somehow we end up with this weird, powerless prayer that says, we're going to ask God, but it doesn't mean he's going to do anything about it. That is not what Jesus said. He didn't, he didn't say, well, it's fine, they're sleeping. God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. He kicked him and said, get up, you got to pray. Temptation's coming, Peter. Don't you know? I just told you Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Get up and pray. You're about to be tempted and tested. Prayer is asking and receiving. He had just promised them at the Last Supper that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now let's go pray. Wouldn't you want to go pray after Jesus said that to your face? They get out to the garden. Oh, I'm tired. He, he does, you know how he is. He'll pray all night again, like he always does. Let's just let's sleep a little bit, and we'll wake up a little bit later. Every one of them, back in the upper room, had blustered. I will never deny you, Lord. Everybody else is going to fall away. I'm going to stay following after you. But then when the moment came to pray, they refused to pray. They fell asleep. The 
This is what he meant by the phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It applied to Jesus in one way. He's like, listen, guys, my flesh is fighting with me here. You've got to pray for me. But it also applied to them. I know your spirit is willing to follow me, but your flesh is so weak, you're going to fall to temptation. So you've got to pray and strengthen your spirit. So many of us love to daydream of the day that we're questioned for our faith and we stand firm and we're executed by firing squad in Jesus' name. But when it comes to that night, when it's time to sit down and pray, or that day when you've got to open your Bible and read, we fall asleep, so to speak. We're willing to fight that battle, but we're not willing to put in the work that needs to get us ready for that battle. Peter was loud and proud, but he couldn't pray, and so he failed. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And not only that, you've got an enemy who's trying to stop you from praying. Ephesians 6 Verses 11 and 12, and then I'll skip to verse 16. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Implication, there is a devil, he has schemes, and he's coming for you. But you can stand if you put on the armor of God. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against neighbors or co-workers or family. We do not wrestle against politicians and celebrities and reporters. We do not wrestle against other countries. We do not wrestle against any of that. We wrestle against authorities, rulers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying you've got to get your eyes off the physical and get your head in the spiritual where the battle is. Well, how do we do that? How do we fight? You skip down to verse 16. He runs through all this defensive stuff. What's the one offensive thing he gives? Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Perseverance. Paul's like, if you're going to do this, if you're going to pray like you ought to pray, you will need perseverance because you're going to get tired. You're going to get bored. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to get busy. You're going to get distracted. So he says, persevere because this is where the fight is. Satan has a lot of attacks that he launches. But at critical moments in history, he always wants to pull the plug on prayer. Forget history. In your life, when Satan is about to launch an attack on you, when he's going to sift you, Satan wants to pull the plug on prayer in your life. He's got to unplug you from the spirit. Because you can do whatever you want in the physical. Go to church. I don't care. Tithe. I don't care. Whatever you're going to do, feed the poor, that's fine. Just don't pray. Because your, your flesh is mine. I can handle your flesh. I can't handle your spirit when it's strong, though. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Well, really one, but it's two verses. Isaiah 65, verse 1. The Lord said, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. In Isaiah 64, the prophet, that's that great thing where he's saying, oh, that you would rend the heavens and do like you did back in the day. We're all crumbling up like leaves in the wind. Lord, you've got to help us. And God said, I wanted to help you, but you wouldn't pray. I was ready to be sought, but you didn't seek me. I was ready to be found, but you didn't look for me. I was ready, but you weren't. And in Ezekiel 22, verses 30 through 31, Ezekiel is in exile. He's in Babylon. He's been kidnapped, taken out of his country, brought to a new place, forcibly relocated. And he's saying, Lord, why? Why, Lord? 
And the people are asking, why, Lord? Why are we here? The Lord said in verse 30, I sought for a man from among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. Did you catch that? The Lord says, y'all needed to be judged, but I wanted to show mercy. So I looked for one, one man, one intercessor, one person that would stand in the gap like Moses did and say, please, Lord, no, show mercy. Or like Abraham with Sodom and say, Lord, please, no. He said, and I couldn't find one. So judgment came. The Babylonian exile could have been delayed if the people had prayed. And do you know how I know that's true? Because it had happened before. When Josiah brought about that revival in the country, when they tore their clothes and laid in sackcloth and ashes, God said, you know what? I'm going to delay judgment for a few more generations. How outstanding is that? And it brings us to this night. If there was ever a night when the disciples needed to pray, it was in this moment. So Satan sends all of his sleepiest demons to go and shut these disciples down. This is the night. I don't want one of those disciples praying. Shut them down. They had just been in the upper room with Jesus. And all of a sudden they fall asleep. You ever, you ever get tired when you sit down to pray inexplicably? Don't, don't think that's just physical. You ever sit down to pray and all of a sudden everybody's yelling and screaming and calling your phone? Or you remember all those chores you're supposed to be doing? Well, that's, that's too mundane to be demonic. Don't kid yourself. When you try to do something spiritual and you immediately get taken away by something else, why would he use something big? If all he's got to do is remind you of the grocery list to keep you from praying, why would he want to exert any more effort than that? Satan knows that prayer shakes things up like nothing else. That when Christians pray, the world shakes. The world gets flipped upside down. So he tries to prevent the saints from praying. In the old days, when the, when the church was making too many advances, he had them thrown to the lions. He had their heads chopped off. He had them dipped in wax and lit on fire. He had their skin peeled off and paraded before the city. He murdered Christians in the public square so that everybody would see and be afraid. But the church kept praying. So you know what he did? He switched his tactics. Fine. If I can't stop you, all i got to do is redirect you. And today, all he's got to do is keep us busy. There's always something to keep our attention. And you know what I've, I've decided in my own life? My thought, whenever somebody starts talking about, oh, we're so distracted today, is to roll my eyes like a good little millennial and say, okay, boomer, it's fine. You, you, you talk about how we're all distracted and all this stuff. Forget it. This is the way the world is. You've got to deal with it. I have learned that when I am unplugged from that stuff, my heart is so much more in tune with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about turning into a monk. I'm talking about forget the frivolous stuff. That's how Satan gets us, with frivolous. Just five more minutes, five more seconds, 20 more minutes here, one more episode. If you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not like that. I, I don't look at my phone. I don't get on TV. Okay, well, where, where does it happen in your life? Because it does happen. Always something to do with work. Always something to do with the family. Always something to do with the neighbors. The news, for crying out loud. We get obsessed with what's happening. And the thing is, that one is so tricky. Do you know why it's tricky? Because we can trick ourselves into thinking you're being a good citizen and you're keeping up with what's going on in the world. No, you're not. If you're being taken away from prayer and you're spending more time reading about what's going on 
thousands of miles away from you and getting offended by weird school boards that you've never even heard of before, and you haven't even been in prayer once that week, what right do you have to go online or go to your friends and start ranting and raving? You are the problem. You have not prayed. You're not holding the rope. Don't get upset at people drowning in the water. You get on your knees and pray. Our job is to take all the things in our life and start throwing them away until there is room for prayer. I just don't have time. Then start hacking and slashing at that schedule. It's gone. Well, that's kind of a big thing. Okay, maybe you'll have room to put it back later. But the first rock that goes in that bucket is prayer. The early church did not have a full New Testament. Most of them were illiterate, but they knew how to pray. There are Christians around the world today that don't have Bibles. They can't read. They've never even heard of your favorite Bible teacher, but they can pray. In Luke chapter 18, it says that he gave us a parable that we ought to always pray and never lose heart. How often to pray? Always and never lose heart. And at the end of that parable, he says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What kind of faith? The faith to pray without ceasing. I don't need to stand here and remind you that the days are dark what I do need to remind you is that being angry about things, talking about things, is not the same thing as praying for them. We think, oh, my life is dried up and prayerless, but I'm angry at all the right things, therefore I'm okay with God. That is a lie from the enemy. I believe that we ought to pray. Good, do you pray? Because if you don't, you're a hypocrite. Most of the time we say, well, I did pray. Most of the time we didn't pray, we just worried. We worried, and we, oh, I thought about it all day, so I prayed. No, you didn't. That's not the same thing. Everybody feels badly about bad things happening. Christians are the ones that get down on their knees and pray. Well, I prayed for an hour. Good. Pray for another hour. Daniel prayed for three weeks before he got his answer. The church prayed for 10 days, and Pentecost came. If 10 days of straightforward prayer can bring about Pentecost, we need to have a prayer service or something around here. We're going to take 10 days and see what God can do with 10 days of prayer. What excuses have you built up that seem like good reasons to keep you from praying? Because they're not good reasons. I promise you they're not. No one in here doesn't think prayer is important. There's not a single Christian that's going to hear this message on the radio or the podcast or the live stream or whatever who's going to say, I disagree. I think prayer is useless. I don't think we should pray. No one thinks that. But no one prays, so what's the deal? Why is the church so weak? Because prayer is air, and if you don't have prayer, you're not breathing. Not just personal prayer, but corporate prayer. Not just corporate prayer, but large groups of Christians gathering together. Can I tell you a story from my own experience? I've been in a lot of unity meetings of churches. I've been in a lot of prayer summits that churches have put together. And what you get is like, 88 minutes of speeches and two minutes of prayer. That's always what happens. And then if you do pray, what you do is you get a bunch of activists that are trying to preach through their prayers. Okay, I need a lot of people to sign up for this thing, so let's make sure we pray it nice and loud and that people hear the website very clearly so that they can go and do it. Heartbreaking to the Lord. But when Christians get together with no other agenda than to pray... And no blame outside of the church except upon ourselves for failure to pray. That's when God can change the world. Don't you know that to be true? Haven't you found in your life that when you dedicate yourself to prayer for like a week, everything starts changing? 
Like everything is just different. My perspective is different. Things are starting to go differently in my life. I know just what to say in these situations. Stuff is starting to look up a little bit. And then what happens? The devil sees it, and so he slaps you down. Don't you dare try to get up there and start praying. He slaps you down like these disciples. Being prayerless is never a conscious choice. It is a slow burn that removes the threat from your mind. If you could see what's going on around you, you'd be so panicked you would never get up off your knees. You'd be praying the rest of your life. But why do you need to see it? You know it's there. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus keeps praying. But did you notice? He came back and found them sleeping again, and he did not wake them up a second time. He did not wake up his disciples. He went back and he kept praying. There's two things there. Number one, Hebrews 7.25 says that the Son of God will never stop praying for us. So even if we fail, Jesus is still interceding for us. But here's the second thing. The summons did not come again for the disciples. After a while, the conviction to pray begins to leave us. If we resist the call to pray enough times, we're going to stop feeling bad about it. We're going to stop feeling convicted. We're going to stop believing that it matters. We're going to start doubting the own experiences that we've had. When you saw the miracle happen and you went crazy and you went nuts, and then a few months later you're like, was that real? I mean, come on, was that real? What was that? These men were called into a special partnership with Jesus Christ. I want you to pray with me the night of my crucifixion, and they missed that opportunity forever. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter knew what it meant to miss it when it came to prayer. Because as soon as this was over, he's going to go and deny Jesus. People are going to ask him, aren't you one of his disciples? Five minutes ago, he had said, I'll die with you, Jesus. And he cusses people out and says, get out of my face. I don't know who you're talking about. I'm talking about that guy right there. I don't know who that is. It didn't happen all at once. It happened because he failed to pray. Peter, James, John, all of them should have been standing right there with Jesus while he was on trial. We don't want you. We just want him. I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. You can nail me to the cross right next to him because I'm not leaving my master. Instead, what does he say? I don't know who that is. You're crazy. Why did he do that? You ever wonder why sudden sin breaks into your life? And you go, where did that come from? Because prayerlessness opens the door to sin. And the cycle is, sin then starts to strangle your prayers. Well, I do pray and God doesn't answer. Is there sin in your life? Because sin will choke it out. The Lord wants to rip the sin out first. And Jesus has beckoned us into the garden and said, come pray with me. Don't you want to come with him? Can't we watch with him for a little while? Verses 45 and 46 come into a close here. He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The trial came. It was not about to be delayed. It was coming. The day of evil had come. And they had not prayed, 
That didn't matter. It was coming anyway. And the Greek there, when he says sleep later, it could either be, this is no time for sleeping, like a rebuke, or it could even be sarcastic, like, yeah, fine, keep on sleeping. Let's see how it goes for you. But you know what happened. The disciples scattered. Jesus was crucified. Peter denied Jesus. Let's put that another way. The one who prayed in the garden endured all the temptation faithfully to the end. And the ones who failed to pray failed the test. 1 John 5, 14-15 says, This is the confidence that we have toward Him. What is our attitude in prayer? Confidence! That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. Can you think of times where God has called you to pray and you've seen the reason why later? I, don't, I feel like I've got to pray. I don't know why. I'm just in the mood to pray. Then the next day you roll up and you get that phone call from that person you haven't heard from in a long time. Or you encounter something at work or a temptation comes your way that you weren't expecting. Or you find out there was a crisis in that person's life that you were thinking about the night before when the Lord is calling you to pray. There are trials that can only be overcome through prayer. There are blessings that can only be received through prayer. Mark 9.29, the demon-possessed boy before Jesus. The disciples were trying to cast the demon out. They were doing everything right, but the demon was still there. Jesus shows up and says, get out of here. And they say, what was the problem? Why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus said, this one only comes out through prayer and fasting. Again, that was not, well, get down on your knees and pray and fast real quick. They should have been living a life of prayer and fasting so that when the moment came, they were ready. Jesus was, and so a demon that thwarted the 12 apostles was no big deal because he had been living that life. There are things in your life that you will only overcome through prayer. You can discipline yourself all you want. You can make as many plans of attacks. You can get as many accountability partners as you want. You will never overcome it until you pray. And there will be blessings that you do not receive until you pray. Jesus is our model. Jesus was going to the cross. Was there ever anything that was more God's will than Jesus dying on the cross for our sins? And yet even Jesus Christ said, I've got to pray for a few hours before we do this. Because he knew. And he's our model. My favorite verses in the whole Bible are these right here. John 14, 12 through 14. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, and you know how we do it. If you believe in Jesus, raise your hand. This verse is about you. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Do you see that? The reason we will do greater works than Jesus is because he's going to the Father, which means he's going to bring us into relationship with his Father so that when we pray, we receive the answer to our prayers. He says in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then people say, aha, see, in his name. If we don't, we have to find out exactly what his name means or we can't receive our answers to prayer. So Jesus says it again in verse 14 without the qualification. Stamp this on your mind. John 14, 14, Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How many times does he have to say it? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But by the time we get to Revelation, Jesus is the one knocking on the door. Can I come in, please? 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 